This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, September 2006. Captain Blood by Raphael Sapatini. Chapter 27 Cartagena. Having crossed the Caribbean in the teeth of contrary winds, it was not until the early days of April that the French fleet hove in sight of Cartagena, and Monsieur de Rivarol summoned a council aboard his flagship to determine the method of assault. It is of importance, messieurs, he told them, that we take the city by surprise, not only before it can put itself into a state of defence, but before it can remove its treasures inland. I propose to land a force sufficient to achieve this to the north of the city to-night after dark. And he explained in detail the scheme upon which his wits had laboured. He was heard respectfully and approvingly by his officers, scornfully by Captain Blood, and indifferently by the other buccaneer captains present. For it must be understood that Blood's refusal to attend councils had related only to those concerned with determining the nature of the enterprise to be undertaken. Captain Blood was the only one amongst them who knew exactly what lay ahead. Two years ago he had himself considered a raid upon the place, and he had actually made a survey of it in circumstances which he was presently to disclose. The Baron's proposal was one to be expected from a commander whose knowledge of Cartagena was only such as might be derived from maps. Geographically and strategically considered, it is a curious place. It stands almost four square, screened east and north by hills, and it may be said to face south upon the inner of two harbours by which it is normally approached. The entrance to the outer harbour, which is in reality a lagoon some three miles across, lies through a neck known as the Boca Chica, or Little Mouth, and defended by a fort. A long strip of densely wooded land to the westward acts here as a natural breakwater, and as the inner harbour is approached, another strip of land thrusts across at right angles from the first, towards the mainland on the east. Just short of this it ceases, leaving a deep but very narrow channel, a veritable gateway into the secure and sheltered inner harbour. Another fort defends this second passage. East and north of Cartagena lies the mainland, which may be left out of account. But to the west and northwest this city, so well guarded on every other side, lies directly open to the sea. It stands back beyond a half-mile of beach, and besides this, and the stout walls which fortify it, would appear to have no other defences. But those appearances are deceptive, and they had utterly deceived Monsieur de Rivarol when he devised his plan. It remained for Captain Blood to explain the difficulties when Monsieur de Rivarol informed him that the honour of opening the assault in the manner which he prescribed was to be accorded to the buccaneers. Captain Blood smiled sardonic appreciation of the honour reserved for his men. It was precisely what he would have expected. For the buccaneers the dangers, for Monsieur de Rivarol the honour, glory, and profit of the enterprise. "'It is an honour which I must decline,' said he quite coldly. Wolverstone grunted approval, and Hagthorpe nodded. Iberville, who, as much as any of them, resented the superciliousness of his noble compatriot, never wavered in loyalty to Captain Blood. 
The French officers, there were six of them present, stared their haughty surprise at the buccaneer leader, whilst the baron challengingly fired a question at him. "'How? You decline it, sir? You decline to obey orders, do you say?' "'I understood, Monsieur le Baron, that you summoned us to deliberate upon the means to be adopted.' Then you understood amiss, Monsieur le Capitaine. You are here to receive my commands. I have already deliberated, and I have decided. I hope you understand. Oh, I understand, laughed Blood. But I ask myself, do you? And without giving the Baron time to set the angry question that was bubbling to his lips, he swept on. You have deliberated, you say, and you have decided— but unless your decision rests upon a wish to destroy my buccaneers, you will alter it when I tell you something of which I have knowledge. The city of Cartagena looks very vulnerable on the northern side, all open to the sea as it apparently stands. Ask yourself, Monsieur le Baron, how came the Spaniards who built it, where it is, to have been at such trouble to fortify it to the south, if from the north it is so easily assailable? That gave Monsieur de Rivarol pause. The Spaniards, Blood pursued, are not quite the fools you are supposing them. Let me tell you, messieurs, that two years ago I made a survey of Cartagena as a preliminary to raiding it. I came hither with some friendly trading Indians, myself disguised as an Indian, and in that guise I spent a week in the city and studied carefully all its approaches. On the side of the sea, where it looks so temptingly open to assault, there is shoal water for over half a mile out, far enough out, I assure you, to ensure that no ship shall come within bombarding range of it. It is not safe to venture nearer land than three-quarters of a mile. But our landing will be effected in canoes and paraguas and open boats, cried an officer impatiently. In the calmest season of the year, the surf will hinder any such operation, and you will also bear in mind that if landing were possible as you are suggesting, that landing could not be covered by the ship's guns. In fact, it is the landing parties would be in danger from their own artillery. If the attack is made by night, as I propose, covering will be unnecessary. You should be ashore in force before the Spaniards are aware of the intent." You are assuming that Cartagena is a city of the blind, that at this very moment they are not conning ourselves and asking themselves who we are and what we intend. But if they feel themselves secure from the north, as you suggest, cried the baron impatiently, that very security will lull them. Perhaps. But then they are secure. Any attempt to land on this side is doomed to failure at the hands of nature." "'Nevertheless, we make the attempt,' said the obstinate baron, whose haughtiness would not allow him to yield before his officers. "'If you still choose to do so after what I have said, you are, of course, the person to decide, but I do not lead my men into fruitless danger.' "'If I command you,' the baron was beginning, but Blood unceremoniously interrupted him. Monsieur le Baron, when Monsieur de Cousset engaged us on your behalf, it was as much on account of our knowledge and experience of this class of warfare as on account of our strength. I have placed my own knowledge and experience in this particular matter at your disposal. I will add that I abandoned my own project of raiding Cartagena, not being in sufficient strength at the time to force the entrance of the harbour, which is the only way into the city. 
The strength which you now command is ample for that purpose. But whilst we are doing that, the Spaniards will have time to remove great parts of the wealth which this city holds. We must take them by surprise. Captain Blood shrugged. If this is a mere pirating raid, that, of course, is a prime consideration. It was with me. But if you are concerned to abate the pride of Spain, and plant the lilies of France on the forts of this settlement, the loss of some treasure should not really weigh for much. Monsieur de Rivarol bit his lip in chagrin. His gloomy eyes smouldered, as it considered the self-contained buccaneer. "'But if I command you to go to make the attempt?' he asked. "'Answer me, monsieur. Let us know once for all where we stand, and who commands this expedition.' "'Positively I find you tiresome,' said Captain Blood, and he swung to Monsieur de Cousset, who sat there gnawing his lip, intensely uncomfortable. "'I appeal to you, monsieur, to justify me to the general.' Monsieur de Cousset started out of his gloomy abstraction. He cleared his throat. He was extremely nervous.' "'In view of what Captain Blood has submitted—' "'Oh, to the devil with that!' snapped Rivarol. "'It seems that I am followed by poltroons. "'Look you, monsieur le capitaine, since you are afraid to undertake this thing, "'I will myself undertake it. "'The weather is calm, and I count upon making good my landing. "'If I do so, I shall have proved you wrong, "'and I shall have a word to say to you to-morrow which you may not like. "'I am being very generous with you, sir.' He waved his hand regally. "'You have leave to go?' It was sheer obstinacy and empty pride that drove him, and he received the lesson he deserved. The fleet stood in during the afternoon to within a mile of the coast, and under cover of darkness, three hundred men, of whom two hundred were negroes, the whole of the negro contingent having been pressed into the undertaking, were pulled away for the shore in the canoes, paraguas, and ship's boats. Riverol's pride compelled him, however much he may have disliked the venture, to lead them in person. The first six boats were caught in the surf, and pounded into fragments before their occupants could extricate themselves. The thunder of the breakers and the cries of the shipwrecked warned those who followed, and thereby saved them from sharing the same fate. By the baron's urgent orders they pulled away again out of danger, and stood about to pick up such survivors as contrived to battle towards them. Close upon fifty lives were lost in the adventure, together with half a dozen boats stored with ammunition and light guns. The baron went back to his flagship an infuriated, but by no means a wiser, man. Wisdom, not even the pungent wisdom experience thrusts upon us, is not for such as Monsieur de Rivarol. His anger embraced all things, but focused chiefly upon Captain Blood. In some warped process of reasoning, he held the buccaneer chiefly responsible for this misadventure. He went to bed considering furiously what he should say to Captain Blood upon the morrow. He was awakened at dawn by the rolling thunder of guns. Emerging upon the poop in nightcap and slippers, he beheld a sight that increased his unreasonable and unreasoning fury. The four buccaneer ships under canvas were going through extraordinary maneuver half a mile off the Boca Chica, and little more than half a mile away from the remainder of the fleet. And from their flanks, flame and smoke were belching each time they swung broadside to the great round fort that guarded the narrow entrance. The fort was returning the fire vigorously and viciously. 
but the buccaneers timed their broadsides with extraordinary judgment to catch the defending ordnance reloading. Then, as they drew the Spaniards' fire, they swung away again, not only taking care to be ever-moving targets, but further, to present no more than bow or stern to the fort, their masts in line, when the heaviest cannonades were to be expected. Gibbering and cursing, Monsieur de Riverol stood there and watched this action, so presumptuously undertaken by blood on his own responsibility. The officers of the Victorieuse crowded round him, but it was not until Monsieur de Cousset came to join the group that he opened the sluices of his rage, and Monsieur de Cousset himself invited the deluge that now caught him. He had come up rubbing his hands and taking a proper satisfaction in the energy of the men whom he had enlisted. "'Aha, Monsieur de Rivarol,' he laughed. "'He understands his business, eh, this Captain Blood? He'll plant the lilies of France on that fort before breakfast.' The baron swung upon him, snarling. "'He understands his business, eh? His business, let me tell you, Monsieur de Cousset, is to obey my orders, and I have not ordered this. Par le mordieu! When this is over, I'll deal with him for his damned insubordination.' "'Surely, Monsieur le baron, he will have justified it if he succeeds.' "'Justified it? Ah, parbleu! Can a soldier ever justify acting without orders?' He raved on furiously, his officers supporting him out of their detestation of Captain Blood. Meanwhile the fight went merrily on. The fort was suffering badly. Yet, for all their maneuvering, the buccaneers were not escaping punishment. The starboard gunwale of the Atropos had been hammered into splinters, and a shot had caught her astern in the coach. The Elizabeth was badly battered about the forecastle, and the Arabella's main-top had been shot away, whilst towards the end of that engagement the La Chassie came reeling out of the fight with a shattered rudder, steering herself by sweeps. The absurd baron's fierce eyes positively gleamed with satisfaction. "'I pray heavens they may sink all his infernal ships!' he cried in his frenzy. But heaven didn't hear him. Scarcely had he spoken, than there was a terrific explosion, and half the fort went up in fragments. A lucky shot from the buccaneers had found the powder magazine. It may have been a couple of hours later, when Captain Blood, as spruce and cool as if he had just come from a levee, stepped upon the quarter-deck of the Victorieuse, to confront Monsieur de Rivarol, still in bedgown and nightcap. "'I have to report, Monsieur le Baron, that we are in possession of the fort on Boca Chica.' The standard of France is flying from what remains of its tower, and the way into the outer harbour is open to your fleet. Monsieur de Rivarol was compelled to swallow his fury, though it choked him. The jubilation among his officers had been such that he could not continue as he had begun. Yet his eyes were malevolent, his face pale with anger. "'You are fortunate, Monsieur Blood, that you succeeded,' he said. "'It would have gone very ill with you, had you failed. "'Another time be so good as to await my orders, "'lest you should afterwards lack the justification "'which your good fortune has procured you this morning.' "'Blood smiled with a flash of white teeth and bowed. "'I shall be glad of your orders now, General, for pursuing our advantage. "'You realize that speed in striking is the first essential.' Rivarol was left gaping a moment. Absorbed in his ridiculous anger, he had considered nothing. But he made a quick recovery. 
"'To my cabin, if you please,' he commanded peremptorily, and was turning to lead the way when Blood arrested him. "'With submission, my general, we shall be better here. You behold there the scene of our coming action. It is spread before you like a map.' He waved his hand towards the lagoon, the country flanking it, and the considerable city standing back from the beach. "'If it is not a presumption in me to offer a suggestion,' he paused." M. de Rivarol looked at him sharply, suspecting irony, but the swarthy face was bland, the keen eyes steady. "'Let us hear your suggestion,' he consented. Blood pointed out the fort at the mouth of the inner harbour, which was just barely visible above the waving palms on the intervening tongue of land. He announced that its armament was less formidable than that of the outer fort, which they had reduced." But, on the other hand, the passage was very much narrower than the Boca Chica, and before they could attempt to make it in any case, they must dispose of those defences. He proposed that the French ships should enter the outer harbour, and proceed at once to bombardment. Meanwhile he would land three hundred buccaneers and some artillery on the eastern side of the lagoon, beyond the fragrant garden islands dense with richly bearing fruit-trees, and proceed simultaneously to storm the fort in the rear. Thus beset on both sides at once, and demoralized by the fate of the much stronger outer fort, he did not think the Spaniards would offer a very long resistance. Then it would be for Monsieur de Rivarol to garrison the fort, whilst Captain Blood would sweep on with his men, and seize the church of Nuestra Señora de la Pupa, plainly visible on its hill immediately eastward of town. Not only did that eminence afford them a valuable and obvious strategic advantage, but it commanded the only road that led from Cartagena to the interior, and once it were held, there would be no further question of the Spaniards attempting to remove the wealth of the city. That, to Monsieur de Rivarol, was, as Captain Blood had judged that it would be, the crowning argument. Supercilious until that moment, and disposed for his own pride's sake to treat the buccaneer's suggestions with cavalier criticism, Monsieur de Rivarol's manner suddenly changed. He became alert and brisk, went so far as, tolerantly, to commend Captain Blood's plan, and issued orders that action might be taken upon it at once. It is not necessary to follow that action step by step. Blunders on the part of the French marred its smooth execution, and the indifferent handling of their ships led to the sinking of two of them in the course of the afternoon by the fort's gunfire. But by evening, owing largely to the irresistible fury with which the buccaneers stormed the place from the landward side, the fort had surrendered, and before dusk Blood and his men with some ordnance, hauled thither by mules, dominated the city from the heights of Nuestra Señora de la Pupa. At noon on the morrow, shorn of defences and threatened with bombardment, Cartagena sent offers of surrender to Monsieur de Rivarol. Swollen with pride by a victory for which he took the entire credit to himself, the baron dictated his terms. He demanded that all public effects and office accounts be delivered up, that the merchants surrender all monies and goods held by them for their correspondence. The inhabitants could choose whether they would remain in the city or depart, but those who went must first deliver up all their property, and those who elected to remain must surrender half and become the subjects of France. Religious houses and churches should be spared, but they must render accounts of all monies and valuables in their possession. Cartagena agreed, having no choice in the matter, and on the next day, which was the 5th of April, 
Monsieur de Rivarol entered the city and proclaimed it now a French colony, appointing Monsieur de Cousset its governor. Thereafter he proceeded to the cathedral, where, very properly, a te deum was sing in honor of the conquest. This by way of grace, whereafter Monsieur de Rivarol proceeded to devour the city. The only detail in which the French conquest of Cartagena differed from an ordinary buccaneering raid was that under the severest penalties no soldier was to enter the house of any inhabitant. But this apparent respect for the persons and property of the conquered was based in reality upon M. de Rivarol's anxiety, lest a doubloon should be abstracted from all the wealth that was pouring into the treasury opened by the baron in the name of the King of France. Once the golden stream had ceased, he removed all restrictions and left the city in prey to his men, who proceeded further to pillage it of that part of their property which the inhabitants, who became French subjects, had been assured should remain inviolate. The plunder was enormous. In the course of four days, over a hundred mules laden with gold went out of the city and down to the boats waiting at the beach to convey the treasure aboard the ships. End of chapter 27